Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between our real-life double act of independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page. And this is what we do, lay out the inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. If half the stocks go up and half go down, we're the first to call out that analysts seem to slap buy ratings on nearly everything. And we've spent 90-plus episodes now in the studios exposing the sycophants and stenographers that stand behind all the bubbles that end up in trouble. Most recently, we went from the studio to the stage with both of us taking top billing at the FT Weekend Festival at Kenwood House. And my panel was aptly entitled The New Gold Rush, How to Make Money Out of Tech. We're also reacting to requests we get to do a few pods of just us. Hard to believe, I know, but sometimes our listeners feel Will is just too enthusiastic with the guests. And we want to get back to our show title about bubbles and troubles, especially in a week where we saw some IPOs come back to the market, the likes of Arm and Instacart. Back in a moment to talk about whether the bubble is back on track or there's trouble ahead. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, welcome back, Richard. Just ourselves. And usually Saturdays, we venture up to Kenwood House on our runs. On the Saturday, the 2nd of September this year, we ventured to Kenwood House to to join what felt like a private party of maybe 1,000 exclusive guests of the Financial Times, a friend of the show, a big champion of our podcast, and then finding ourselves on the stage. And you were on an interesting stage, and maybe we just go from left to right the panel. You were on the stage with James Anderson, formerly of Bailey Gifford. You were with Avid Lazardar Duggan, who is formerly of Cobalt, who revolutionised music publishing, now of the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, and then interviewed by John Thornhill, another friend of the show and potentially a future guest as well. A great panel, and what I would love to do, given that hopefully we can release a video of the panel in days, weeks to come, is just revisit some of the topics that happened. I mean, first of all, Richard, were you surprised by the attendance? It was a roadblock in that marquee. Yeah, it was packed. And luckily, we were on fairly early, but not too early because there were giant queues to get in. And also not against one of the other marquee speakers. For example, they had the the guy who did the script for Succession. Unfortunately, your panel was up against him. So we we managed a good slot. Yeah, I didn't. I, you wouldn't want to succeed the guy who did the script for Succession. No. <laughs> so let, let's just revisit. I mean, to have James Anderson on that panel was really something. I don't know how many people in Britain have a part of their pension plan and the Bailey Gifford Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, but it has done incredibly well over the time. And 
I think John Thornhill went to him first of all and posed a question to him about what makes you the Warren Buffett of the British fund managers? What makes you so special? I wanted to pose this question to you, which is he cited this very interesting trap called Hendrik Bessenbinder, mm. whose basic logic is that the stock market takes a, a log normal distribution. There's very few stocks which produce a large amount of the gains and a whole lot of stocks which produce very little of the gains. And he went further. He said, more recently, just three companies generated 10% of the value added in the stock market. So I guess his approach is to find these whales and just stick with them. And that is, can you find the whales? Is it a distribution that you agree with? Do you see the stock market as something similar, which is if you back two or three horses and you get it right, well, you could ignore the other 300,000 horses that exist? So I do agree with the general principle that there are a handful of stocks that drive market performance, but there's a lot of reasons for that. And the issue I have here with James and and his approach is that it's not new. I remember a book back in the 90s, I think it was, or the early 2000s, called Superstocks, really about that same phenomenon. And, and there they were talking about companies like Nokia or Ericsson or Cisco or Research in Motion that made Blackberries, and they were the superstocks of their era. And of course, many of those companies crashed and burned spectacularly. So there's always been a concentration in markets, and it's in no small part due to the psychology of bubbles. So we cannot keep a view of all 8,000 stocks in developed world stock markets all at once. The market tends to shine a spotlight in one or another corner, and it can't capture everything all at once. And wherever that spotlight shines is where more people focus attention on. And for example, I, I really was struck by watching the likes of CNBC, where they really just talk about the same group of 20 or 30 well-known household brands that are also listed companies. If they talk about food retailers, they're going to talk about McDonald's and Starbucks. If they're going to talk about tech, they're going to talk about the likes of Apple and Microsoft and Google and Meta because everybody knows those names. It's like so a there vacuum that... Hoover relationship, like the vacuum Hoover. Exactly. And so... I don't disagree with James that concentration of performance is well observed in the stock market over many years, but I think what he maybe was too close to and, and too much a part of is the fact that he bought thoroughly into this notion that it will be a few disruptive technology companies that win out when sometimes the tortoise wins the race over the hare. And in their periods of the market where it's better to own the solid and stodgy performers as opposed to the high flyers. So let's just stick with that for a second. So if Henrik Bessenbinder says just three companies generated 10% of the actual gross, gross value added in the stock market, is it, do you think, then a complex mathematical formula and some serious empirical evidence that backs this up? Or is it just the nature of herd-like behavior in the market? If Tesla's a hot stock and Tesla grabs the headlines, we all back Tesla, even though there's other alternatives in the market. Is it as much about herds or is it as much about maths? Where does the pendulum swing? I mean, it, it, it's without avoiding the question, it's a bit of both. But bear in mind that one company like Apple that has nearly a $3 trillion value in the market can obviously, by going up 1%, add a lot more value than a lot of other stocks. Now, there was one point in which this year, Apple was worth more 
than the entire Russell 2000 small cap index. Wow. So Apple was worth more as a single stock than all the other stocks in that small cap index combined. And the reality is that the market needs to put money to work and those large liquid names are kind of must-have owns for anyone who's running an index fund, for example, or anyone who simply wants to dabble in the market and doesn't have the time to research those the long tail of 2,000 companies in the Russell Index. And one last question on this. I don't want to dominate around James Anderson, but he was the blockbuster act. He was the head of the distribution of that panel, you could say. Mm. But just on Apple, I remember a Silicon Valley investor telling me in the Bay Area, he said, over here in the Bay, Apple is a tracker fund. Is that something you would agree with? They're just that big that if Apple coughs, everyone else catches a cold. Well, look, Apple has as a $400 billion company that, for example, has a cost of goods sold of $200 billion in its product business. That means it's buying $200 billion worth of parts and machinery and so forth to make all the products it, it sells every year. And that's a yeah. huge amount of value it parcels out downstream to its supply chain. So a company like Apple will be incredibly influential. And by the very nature of its vast scale, they will get some of the best deals on the market for all of those components and services that they purchase. That's just kind of natural economies of scale. But back to this notion of a handful of stocks driving the market performance, that is true, but it's not consistently the same handful of stocks. And that's the tricky bit. That's what makes it difficult to just put your money in one of these high-flying names and expect that it will, unlike Icarus, never sail too close to the sun. Grand stuff. So we've got, a, in terms of long tail language here, we have a fat head and a very long, very skinny tail. Mm. But the, com the what comprises that fat head changes over time. So I guess it's a portfolio theory with a sort of one-in, one-out strategy that could exist. And it reminds me of a great quote from Crispin Hunt, who shared a stage with myself, where he talked about hits and music. He's, he famously said, some hits are evergreen, but maybe they've been overwatered. So maybe yeah. some stocks are evergreen, but maybe those two have been a little bit overwatered. Well, and indeed, the self-reinforcing mechanism is that because the Apples and the NVIDIAs and the Teslas are such ginormous market cap stocks, then the CNBC commentators have to talk about them all the time. The analysts and fund managers have to express an opinion about them. So they absorb a lot of the, the light in yeah. the room. And it makes it very hard Indeed, the regulators are now looking into how they preserve research on small cap stocks because it's not really economic for a lot of the, the banks and brokers to spend their time on these little names. They don't trade enough. They don't generate corporate business. And they're, they're kind of disappearing in the market right now because they're so overshadowed by these, these giant planets or, or, or stars or what have you, whatever you want to call the, the big tech names that dominate the stock market. Fantastic. Well, let's leave James Anderson for a moment and move to the middle of the panel where we had the unpronounceable name, if you have a Scottish accent, but I will try, Avid Lazarda Duggan from the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan and formerly heading up Cobalt Music Publishing. She did a fantastic job there transforming the antiquated world of music publishing. And she talked about a new gold rush, which is music to your ears. And we have a podcast called Bubble Trouble. But she talked about a new gold rush being led by 
artificial intelligence. And I just want to get a very quick take on terms of, do you buy into her thesis that we're, uh, you've seen <laughs> bubble number one back at the millennium, you've seen bubble number two, are we about to see a third bubble in the world of tech with AI? Is it really a new chapter? Well, look, I think she was on that panel doing her job and I was doing mine. She used a lot of jargon that I think was difficult for the, by my reckoning, for some of the audience to catch on to when she started talking about open source or applications, because this was very much a generalist audience. But bear in mind that her job is to make investments. And if she doesn't find companies to invest or doesn't find themes to back, then she's not doing her job. So she has a vested interest in hyping up where she may have already placed her chips on the table with a bunch of AI startups. Now, the dozens and dozens of AI startups in the market, we know many of them will fail. The logical home for many of them will be inside the big tech companies who will acquire them in when they don't have enough sales and marketing muscle or can't land that big customer. What we call tech eating tech. Yeah. And in response, I tried to simplify things and, and make the point that AI is really this technique in computing called machine learning, which is really built on some fairly simple statistics and, and linear algebra concepts of testing and retesting, A-B testing, trying two different things and see which one works better and try it again and again. That notion of AI as we understand it today, which can be simplified into machine learning or just linear algebra, is sitting behind Google search, is sitting behind the Amazon e-commerce business. It is constantly observing and optimizing. And that's nothing new. Now, the ability of generative AI models and the transformer model to take that to a next level and supercharge it is undoubtedly powerful. But already since January and all the hype, you've seen some rowing back and you've seen some, some questions about what the real applications for practical reality for most people will be beyond students getting someone to write their term papers for them or beyond uh, copywriters having coming up with clever slogans that may or may not be any good. Yeah, I, I resonate with your doubts here. It, it does for me. I mean, what do we actually see down on street level with AI? Is it just even more annoying chatbots making it even harder to get an appointment with your bank? I just, I get the long-term potential. I'm just a little bit concerned there could be a cold winter upon us where we hype it beyond its actual applications. Or as you like to say, we get ahead of our skis. Yeah, and I think we've already passed that sort of the peak of hype and we're now falling gradually, perhaps more gently this time into the, what is affectionately termed the trough of despair. And there will be uh, a despair over why AI hasn't changed the world more quickly until, in the end, people grind out the, the hard work of, of making it a practical reality for everyday work or, or personal situations, and it starts to reveal its magic. And that's very typical with most technologies, that it has to go through that grinding out hard work cycle. And I think a lot of times you see companies launch products in the hopes that consumers or hobbyists or individuals out there will effectively beta test for them and give them feedback of what they like and don't like 
And they use that and iterate and, and put that into the next versions of the products. And, and we're really now just looking at the first versions of these products. And you're making me think about Alexa, with the hype that was around Alexa, voice mm -hmm. control devices, and that's kind of fallen back down to earth with a bit of a thump, actually. It's a black yeah. cylinder that you bought someone for their Christmas. And the actual activation, I keep going back to the early days of launching Alexa, a big AI machine learning conference where they talked about the accuracy of being able to tell you what the weather was in your region using Alexa, to which I raised my hand and said, well, I could just look out the window. Yeah. Is it that big a marginal change? Well, and, and also then people become aware, at least in some circles, that there's a device in your house listening to you all the time and they may not like that. Yeah. So there's some pushback. Now, one area and I think that's, AI... That's tech utopians. Yeah. That's, why would you be offended by a device listening to you all your time? Well, I happen to have a pulse and social skills and I enjoy yeah. my privacy. Yeah. You want to study that instead of machine learning? Yeah. So, and, and look, it is clear that AI coming into next year's UK and US elections will unfortunately be a bullshit generator on steroids. We will potentially see any news story spin up dedicated fake AI websites within minutes to redirect traffic to false news narratives. And all of that can be incredibly pernicious. You see deep fakes of people and, and all this terrible stuff. So I think the bad guys will be using AI with immediate effect. We know how and that adoption curve goes, right? <laughs> we know how that adoption curve goes. The, the criminals are always the first to glom onto any new technology. And we've had several, many podcasts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and who might have been the initial uh, early adopters of that. But how AI affects the everyday person over time, I think that's going to be a more nuanced conversation. All right, last one before the break there. And yeah, in the second half, I want to go down the rabbit hole with your, quite frankly, stunning remarks and that you left the audience stunned about the Chinese government. But prior to that topic, and we'll get to that topic, let's just come back to the remarks you said about cash and cash flow. When you're on these panels, there's a golden rule of media training, which is don't dump numbers on the audience because it makes it hard to follow. But you did a very eloquent job of introducing some numbers around the sheer scale of cash these companies are sitting on and the cash flow that they're working through. So I'd love our audience to hear what that audience got the pleasure of on the 2nd of September. Sure. I mean, I think it is important for anyone looking at the markets today to reckon with the power of the five big tech companies. And let's leave aside Tesla and NVIDIA for the moment. But I'm talking about Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, and Alphabet, formerly known as Google. What's your and, favorite acronym just now? What's the acronym? I don't, I, I don't like any of them. <laughs> Alphabet you know, soup time. GAFAM or whatever. So those five companies have $1.6 trillion of sales in the last 12 months. They are spending $220 billion on R&D. They are investing $160 billion in capital, capital expenditure in terms of building data centers and building offices and their own facilities. They generate about $280 billion of cash flow, free cash flow, that's after the $160 billion of investment. And they have about $300 billion of cash sitting on their, their, in their coffers right now. And my point was a very simple one, which is that reflects enormous political power and social 
power alongside the economic might that it obviously implies. And when we get on to talk about regulation, one needs to consider those companies in the same light as you would think of any large, powerful corporation and the influence it has over the political process. I hear it. Then just you threw a lot of numbers at the audience there, but you began with a number which began with the T, the trillion figure. Can you just clarify that trillion figure? Because I'm doing some math in my head right now. Yeah. So there's $1.6 trillion of sales of those five big companies in the last uh, 12 months. Apple has about $400 billion of sales. Amazon has slightly more than that. Microsoft has about $250 billion. Google Alphabet has about $300 billion. And the little baby of them is Meta, which has something like $120 billion of sales. So maybe you're underlying James Anderson's point about how a very few number of companies can produce a very large amount of the gains. And if I do it in my head here, you could probably plot a trajectory as to when these five U.S. headquartered companies generate more in sales than the economy of Japan generates in gross domestic product. Yeah, and but also bear in mind <laughs> that as stocks, these stocks don't always lead the market in performance because each of them will always face questions about whether Google can maintain its monopoly on search or all of the other uh, traditional retailers are learning how to do e-commerce as well as Amazon or... There's irritation with Microsoft constantly raising its prices. So each one of those companies are constantly under the microscope as to whether they can sustain their position. And that's why their stocks may not be the best performing in the market in any given year. Wow. Well, let's take a break now because we're going to come back to where you really caused a lot of jaws hit the floor in that tent at Cambridge House on the 2nd of September with your remarks about China. But you've already given us a beautiful illustration of just the sheer size and scale mm. and the, the density of cash that's sitting within five American headquartered companies. Let's come back in a moment and we'll go down a rabbit hole with our Cambridge House FT Weekend panel performance from Richard Kramer. 
uh, John Thornhill, who's you know, a longtime FT journalist, but also part of the Sifted group as well. And during that discussion, things took a twist, an unexpected twist, where you literally took the audience head on and countered the conventional wisdom, which is great to see that happen at a panel. Usually panels are regurgitating what the echo chamber that everyone agrees with. But you turned the tables on the audience when the topic of China came up. Because we play Schadenfreude with China, the tech stops are down, the country's ruled by the state, blah, blah, blah. Let's just ignore the fact that they basically subsidised UK higher education, little things like this do matter. But we play Schadenfreude with the Chinese economy. But you turned it around and said, well, if you look at that one memo, and I want you to pick up on this point, it's one memo, very quickly the Chinese government decided that unlike the West, where the tech rules the state, that in China, the state would rule tech. And I'm partially cited, but I can tell you, people in that marquee just sat back at that point. You could see it. You woke them up. And I just want to get into this topic and unpack it for a second. Give me the, the, the inspiration to say that live on stage. Was it the memo? Was it something that's been brewing for many years now? Take us up to that point where you realize, in the West, the market runs the state, or these five companies, as you pointed out in part one, can effectively run the state. But in China, the state says, ah, oh, not so fast. We're going to run the show. We'll decide, we'll call the tune, and you're going to do the dancing. So it's a great question, and it takes me back through decades of being a tech analyst and certainly looking at big tech companies in the last five to 10 years I think I've spent more time than any other analyst on the topic of regulation. It's been an outstanding risk for the likes of a Google or a Meta or an Apple, whether a Margaret Verstager at the EU, which we've done a podcast on, or the US DOJ would get their heads around regulating big tech. And it's always been a source of frustration for me that the regulators seem to be several steps behind the tech companies in so many ways, whether it's understanding in a deep way of the way these companies worked or redrafting the laws in the antitrust playbook so that it wasn't just on this Borkian standard of consumer harm that obviously has led to not just big tech, but big pharma and big ag and big cable and big, big monopsonies. monopsonies. Right. So, so I contrasted that decade-long view, bird's-eye view, of what has failed to happen in regulation in the U.S. and Europe with what I saw happen in China, which was after making one speech in a banking conference in, I think it was November 2019, Jack Ma swiftly disappeared, the Ant Financial IPO was canceled, and you set the wheels in motion to the Chinese state starting to take a very different approach. And so let's just point, press pause there. Let's just go back to that speech because many of our audience might not know who Jack Ma is or might not know yeah. the contents of that speech. So, right. Jack Ma was the CEO and founder of Alibaba, which is the largest e-commerce company in China and was a very high-profile IPO in the U.S. stock market in 2016. And even in communist China, Jack Ma had become very wealthy because he had obviously a large stake in this company that was listed on the New York Stock Exchange uh, or actually on NASDAQ and was worth many billions of dollars. So this is an anomaly. But I think at that point or around that time, the Chinese government 
was able to see everything from Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post to Elon Musk effectively flipping the bird to the SEC about saying whatever he wants to uh, about the Tesla stock, whether it's going to be taken over or not. And they said simply, we do not want to have a class of unelected billionaires telling us, the government, what to do. So we will show them who is boss. And then you, from that point onwards, you had a long string of policy pronouncements and leaked memos and effectively a very brutal show of power on the part of the government that said, you know what? We have the power to regulate and we are going to do it. And you, the companies, need to fall in line. Whereas in the West, where there is supposedly the rule of law, the companies <laughs> can string out these processes for many years. And so the current trials going on between the DOJ and Google were initiated with lawsuits back in 2020 and hearings back in 2020. So the, the wheels of justice grind along very slowly, whereas in China, it's swift and brutal. Right. So you can't play the regulatory fatigue game, which is by the time they've caught you, you've already moved on, um, which is a common thing that you see happening in the Europe and in the US. There's well, and, so much... and, and by the way, can I say nowhere has this been more repulsively evident than in the financial services sector, because the global investment banks, my personal view, which is these are the great criminal enterprises of our time. They have paid something like $600 billion of fines in the last 15 years since the global financial crisis. And that is just simply a cost of doing business. And whether it's Wells Fargo now on its fifth round of fines from the SEC or any of the big European banks that have had such troubled histories, whether it's Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank or HSBC, these banks just act with impunity. And when they're caught, show a modicum of contrition, pay a fine and move on. And yeah. clearly, since the global financial crisis, we have sent a grand total of zero bankers to jail. So there's really no personal sanction for the pursuit of profit and at the, at the risk of getting caught and having your legal and compliance teams wriggle out of it. My favorite fine fun fact of fines is I think Google, YouTube have paid more in fines to the European Commission than they've paid in copyright to European creators, which raises its own awkward question about allocation of resources. What do you want to do? Give creators a living or back up the European Commission's pension pot? More on that later. But let's come back to this, this, this jaw-dropping remarks you made about China. And it, the, there's so many lanes I could take this, but I'm going to choose this one, which is the state in the market, it's very interesting to step back and think, who does the dancing and who actually calls the tune here? Your observation being in China, the state said, not so fast, Jack. We're going to run this show and you ain't. And you're not going to get big enough to either because you're going to control that size. When you look at European countries competing to regulate tech, it's almost a little bit hilarious at times. The French say, back off, we're going to regulate this. And the European Commission says, no, you back off. This is our jurisdiction. We have competition for regulation. And when you see the size of China, the potential for China, do you think that kind of opens this wind further in terms of the ability to regulate tech? The Microsoft Activision case basically passed by every global regulator, bar one, so the whole thing gets held up. Do you think when we look at the states versus markets, as opposed to our state versus a market, is that at the heart of your observation? Well, I think the markets have long had the view that 
whether it was the best democracy money could buy and they could simply purchase the acquiescence of politicians, or by brute force, they would push their way through, they always had the view that we could get away with it. And China is certainly a case where they can't. Russia is another case. Now, I'm not advocating that we have that kind of system of governance and, and politics in the West, but uh, certainly there has been a long and fruitless effort to reset the clock on antitrust, for example, on market concentration, on exploring monopoly rents or monopsony rents that I know you've done work on uh, from the economics uh, angle. And the ability of the state to defend the individual, to defend the consumer relative to the big corporation, it's been denuded. It's been withered and to the point where maybe companies need to be aware of the political climate when they launch deep, big mm -hmm. deals like that. But I don't think they're particularly afraid of the regulators because they feel they can sway them with clever lawyers and economists being put on the stand as expert witnesses. I hear it. And I, I just think for those who've been for the past decade applying Schadenfreude to China, it, what your remarks did to me and to everybody in that tent was the grass isn't that greener on the other side. We've got issues too. And let's mm. come back to one of our issues that we discussed in part one, which is market concentration as well. Another flippant remark which really hit home inside that tent was you talked about how tech can eat tech, mm. how a lot of these promising AI startup companies will get gobbled up by the big four, big five. And you use this line, which is the, the, the larger tech companies, the ones that we discussed in the first part of the show, could, quote, steer the fate of a lot of those generative AI startups. Steer the fate. I thought that was pretty powerful. Build that one out for me. So back in the 2000s, I, I watched this happen at a company called Cisco, which is a very famous networking company. And there was a team of engineers that I think left Cisco three times, set up companies to build a product that they know Cisco needed, and sold their company back to Cisco. <laughs> so it may make more sense for a large player like Google that has its resources dedicated to internal projects, but knows that it needs to do these other three interesting products for its pipeline to encourage five or six AI startups to work on it. And whichever one shows the most promise, makes the most progress, comes up with the cleverest solution, they'll just buy them. And usually these companies will be some dozens of people or a hundred people. They'll be under the radar so they can be bought or snapped up or co-opted in a way that doesn't really come across the desks of regulators. Also, what we see happening with that $160 billion of, of capital expenditure from the big tech companies is they are cornering the market for the cloud computing resource, the NVIDIA chips and the data centers and the storage. They are buying up all the resource that all of those AI startups will need to have. So the only way the AI startups can get any oxygen in that world is to turn around and say, can I actually get some compute capacity and hope that whether it's AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud pro Platform, they're given a look-in on the capacity that's available and, and hotly contested to use? So you had the gold rush in the title of your panel to remind ourselves about the Montana gold rush. It wasn't the prospectors that made the money. It was the people who made the shovels. 
Absolutely. And those shovels today are Azure, GCP, and AWS. And one last thing which we touched on in the panel and we've touched on here, and a shout out to James Ashton, our former guest discussing the ARM IPO, which has gone off like a ripper, was the tech divide. Like those five companies we cited in part one are all in America. There's a good 50 more, which are probably bigger than anything that we have in Europe. There's quite some passionate exchanges from yourself, from James, from Avid, about why Europe just doesn't seem to be able to play in the same league as America. Europe's championship, America's English premiership. And if I step back, why is that? Is it simply the words United States? The fact that you have 348 million people using the same currency, the fact that if you come up with a great idea in Austin, Texas, you have a total addressable market of 240 million people with smartphones and the ability to pay for goods. Whereas if you have a smart idea in Spain, you've got a country of 38 million people. If you have a smart idea in Estonia, you've got a country of a handful of million of people. And if you have a smart idea in Scotland, you've got an addressable market of 5 million people and 15 million sheep. Is it just the fact that America is that much bigger, which we should just give up any hope of Europe being able to compete with America and we'll see companies like ARM list on the New York Stock Exchange going forward? So... This is a super complex topic to unpack because it has several key strands. One strand is that you have exceptional engineering education and innovation cultures in many places in Europe, and it's taken away in service of these U.S. tech companies. So they they have been allowed to make acquisitions here. They have bought up talent, they have built big offices, they have uh, exploited tax loopholes to build big businesses in Europe where they're all headquartered out of Ireland where they pay a 3 or 5% corporate tax. So Europe has kind of allowed its family silver to be sold off slowly to these companies who are no dummies. And meanwhile, whether it's in ETH in Zurich or in Cambridge or the Polytechnician, the, the Ecole Polytechnique in France, you have phenomenal, deep engineering education, well-established in many countries in Europe, but it's not being harnessed for European companies principally. That's it's being deep. sold off. Now, another strand which the panel delved into was how the capital markets in Europe have not been as risk-seeking as opposed to risk-averse as the U.S. capital markets. There's this old chestnut of, in, in the U.S., you can proudly say, I was an entrepreneur and failed three or four times. Yep. But in Europe, if you are an entrepreneur and you fail, it's the end of your life, and effectively. You're end of your professional life. And that attitude towards risk, the sort of brash American cowboy mentality of nothing ventured, nothing gained, hasn't taken root in more conservative Europe. And therefore, you don't have the critical mass of capital to be put to work to back these early stage companies. And that's kind of another critical strand of that issue of Europe not having the tech champions. And maybe one third one is because the markets are more fragmented, companies tend to think solving a problem for their local market is sufficient. Uh, SAP got its start before it became a global software company, currently Europe's largest 
simply being the system of record for a lot of uh, German engineering companies that needed software to manage their complex supply chains. ASML, the Dutch lithography company, got its start uh, out of Philips, which spawned many incredible technology companies, but didn't really itself as a parent company benefit from many of them because they spun them out or sold them off. So it's that ability of companies to see through the investment and have a vision that, that it could go global as opposed to just being big in their local markets, as yeah, you I refer think... to with Spain or Estonia or, or France or Germany. Yeah, you think about Spain just briefly. You have the company Cabify, which dominates the Spanish market over Uber. It's the default way of getting a car is to Cabify it as opposed to Uber it or Lyft it. And I haven't seen them expand anywhere else. But just very quickly before we get to smoke signals, do you know what allowed Cabify to dominate the Spanish market, the only country where Uber couldn't claim pole position? Tell me. The onboarding mechanism for the app asked a couple of very courteous questions. So rather than Uber, let's just get you up and running, get your credit card details, give us your home address, bang, go hire to talk. With Cabify, they said, would you like the driver to open the door for you? No, I'm six feet tall, I'm strong, I can open the door myself. But you asked. And the first thing I thought about was relations, elderly relations of mine who would benefit from the driver opening the door. Mm. And there was just those little gestures of common courtesy which allowed Capify to take on Spain and win it, and Uber still to be lagging in a very distant second position. Very interesting use of behavioral economics there. The offer, yeah. not the fact nobody accepted it. Well, that doesn't mean it was rejected. It meant they were appreciated the offer. It was called manners. And I think maybe there's, no, I don't want to play on national stereotypes here, but there was something in that for me which was quite telling. Now, and, we got and, to get and, and also, can I say, in the case of Uber, clearly in markets like Spain, local market labor regulations have been something that they simply couldn't sweep aside to run their gig economy models. And uh, are we can you debate. suggesting these companies have performed some sort of labor arbitrage, Richard? Could be, Will, could be. And that's something that some countries have dug their heels in on. And from the American perspective, this is just uh, uh, needless grit in the, in the gears. We should just get rid of it and and allow us to have untrammeled access to the world is uh, flat. Zero, zero hours uh, gig economy labor. I hear it. Now, smoke signals. You've been on a panel. I thought, speaking as your co-presenter and a longtime friend, I thought you did an amazing job on that panel. But when you're doing these panels, conferences, are they worth the effort, the travel, the hassles, etc.? But when you do them, what are the smoke signals you hear at conferences where you just, be it on stage under a big camera and lights or in the corridors back, you just put your head in your hands and think, this person with a microphone should... It should be like Linda McCartney and Wings. Do not plug in that microphone because this person should not be on the stage. What are those things that you hear which make you frown? Well, look, I think there is a, a natural tendency in any of these public presentations to say something provocative and controversial. And sometimes that works, but sometimes, certainly since it's my natural tendency, it falls flat. And I think instead erring on the side of, as I tried to do with the China example, in finding a simple phrase to say, well, maybe that country didn't want a bunch of unelected billionaires dictating policy to the government. Something that's simple and concise and gets leaves people thinking 
maybe works a bit better. Now, I still need to restrain myself because my natural impulse is to be combative and provocative and, and throw stuff out there and see if anything gets noticed by the audience. The other thing I will say about seeing these consciousness presentations is I just simply, I cannot stand when you stand, see a conference presentation, especially at tech conferences, where companies put a picture up of clouds and say, the cloud, it's big. <laughs> These sort of vague generalities and unwillingness to engage in the issues, whether because it's the corporate comms won't allow it or because they're afraid of having a, a debate or being called out for something they're doing, which, which might not land as well. I just find it very distressing or, or disappointing that people can stand up and, and waste their time spouting generalities. And when I see a presentation at a conference, I really want to see some data. I want to see some opinions backed up by facts. And all too often, you see presentations and you just scratch your head. There was one I saw at a conference I just attended in Cologne. At the end of it, the guy said, yeah, well, all my images on my slides were generated by mid-journey. I'm like, well, so <laughs> that's the best you can do is to get AI to write your presentation for you. And where's the data? Where's, yeah. the, where's your thought process that brought you to this conclusion? And so that's my second smoke signal is that watch out for these presentations that just throw out these glittering generalities like AI. It's going to be a threat and an opportunity. And I just go, oh my God, please just say something for real. <laughs> and maybe another smoke signal from your fellow panelist, James Anderson. I always remember meeting him in Edinburgh, my hometown, and you know, caught up with him in Broughton Street and, hey, James, how's business? And his response was, the fund management business should hang its head in effing shame. Bit harsh. James, what's up? He said, I can see what they're doing. They're selling at the peak and they're buying at the trough. And then he went on to say, your job as a fund manager is not to arbitrage opportunities, it's to fund successful businesses. And I just loved a quick reminder of the ethics of business, which is your job is not to be looking at short-term volatility, but if you believe in this company, you believe in it for the long haul. Yeah, I see that I really take issue with because I think back to Winston Churchill's maxim, when the, when the facts change, I change my opinion. And for any company to say you're going to back it long-term when the market changes around it, when regulations change its, its opportunities, when its senior management change and the people running, steering the ship are no longer the same uh, people you had confidence in or with the same experience. There's plenty of reasons why uh, a company shouldn't be funded in perpetuity. It should have be held to account regularly so that it needs to keep justifying that funding it receives and not just take it for granted. I hear you. Well, let's close it out on that one. And firstly, we want to thank the Financial Times for putting on such a fantastic weekend. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, and it's on the road. So for our American audience that's coming to Washington, I believe there's plans to take it to New York. This is a format that will travel. It's boutique, it's niche. It's like a private dinner party with a thousand guests in the sun really a straight up 10 to the Financial Times for their efforts. And for you, Richard, and your panel, a straight up 10 as well for taking a roadblocked marquee and really making them think again when it comes to sweeping generalizations about how the global economy works. So you've been with myself, Will Page, my co-host Richard Kramer. This has been Bubble Trouble, and we'll be back next time. 
If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.